Have you ever felt sorry? You felt sorry for something you said, did, thought? You know that, that cutting remark, the hurtful word, the decision that didn't take other people into account? That time when you did that thing that resulted in, well, a friendship breaking, perhaps even just thinking poorly of someone when you shouldn't have. Have you ever had your conscience grabbed and squeezed? Now as we come to Hebrews chapter 9, we need to take account of this really paradox of life. It's, it's a problem, I think I can honestly say, that all of us have faced. At some point or other, we've said something, done something, thought something that has been hurtful, divisive. Not what we wanted, not living up to the standard we have of ourselves, let alone what we might expect others to live up to. And yet it's a paradox because despite the fact that we've all done it, well, we struggle to deal with it. What do we do with that guilt? What do we do with those feelings? Now, we do all sorts of things, don't we? We rationalise it. It wasn't really that bad. I'm sure they didn't take it that way. I think they probably took it in the right spirit. The decision we can undo it maybe, perhaps, later. We just try and ignore it sometimes and perhaps stop talking quite so much to that person. Or, or, or we gaslight, we make it the other person's problem. No, no, I only said that because you did this other thing. How do we deal with this guilt? Now, of course, what we ought to do is very straightforward, isn't it? We ought to apologise for the wrong we've done and seek to make whatever restitution we can. And yet, even the best of times when we do that, when we try our best to fix the mistake, the guilt still lingers. I don't have a particularly good memory of my life. I'm not great at remembering things. But strangely, those moments are often the ones that stick. It's a problem for us, isn't it? It's even more of a problem because we live in a reality where we are responsible for what we do, where judgment will occur, where we are culpable for our actions. The very last couple of sentences in our chapter, in Hebrews chapter 9, say, just as it is appointed for man to die once and after this, judgment. The reality we live in is one where we will face death and we will face an account for our actions. Now, we try and spend our lives pretending otherwise. We try and ignore the reality that this judgment is coming. That death comes for us all. But we can't escape it. It seems like however old you are, old is still to come. However old you are, death is still a long way off for most of us. I'm I'm approaching 40 now, you might not believe it, but... The kids think that I'm ancient. They are convinced that I'm one of the oldest beings on this planet. I'm not quite sure what they think about their grandparents, that they're some sort of immortal, mythical creature or something. I'm not quite sure. 40, I mean, I remember when I was even just a teenager, 20, even 30, 40 seemed like so old. And now all of a sudden, ah, it's middle-aged, isn't it? There's still lots more life to go. You ever felt sorry? What could possibly, truly, properly, totally deal with your guilt? Well, Hebrews chapter 9 has God's answer for us. Now, the first part of our chapter in Hebrews 9 gives us a bit of context. It helps us understand, by way of contrast, God's answer. 
the writer wants to remind us, first of all, of the old ministry, the old covenant, the old ways that God had set up with his people. Now, I think his readers were probably very familiar with the Old Testament. They were Jewish Christians that he's writing to. And so he doesn't have to go in great detail into the whole system, but just enough to remind them. Israel, God's chosen people, had a contract with God. They had a covenant. That's just what the word means, a contract, an agreement. God had set up a dwelling amongst their dwellings. God was tenting amongst their tents. He was living with them. There was a tent within the tents and in all of these details that he's spelling out for us, all the things that were there, the the furniture, the decorations, the the Ark of the Covenant with the stones and all the things that were in there, the point as we come to verse 8 was this of all of this Old Testament, of all the life that Israel had lived, of all these things that were written down, the point was, verse 8 of Hebrews 9, the Holy Spirit was making it clear that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed, while the first tabernacle was still standing. This is a symbol for the present time during which gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the worshipper's conscience. The New Testament writes about the Old Testament in quite an astonishing way. That is, that everything that happened across those thousands of years was God teaching. God using history to set up patterns and pictures and images that we might learn from, that we might be able to understand what was happening when Jesus came. It's strange to think of it that way, that the scriptures, the Holy Spirit used those events and caused them to be written down that we might learn. The scriptures are God's contemporary word for us, not only for us, but for every generation. And what was it that the Holy Spirit was trying to teach? Well, the Holy Spirit was teaching by that system that Israel had both the way to God and that the way to God was no way. There was the tabernacle, there were the tents, there was the place for making the sacrifice and finding your way in to God. And yet what happened? The way was barred. The high priest could only enter and then once a year and then with blood and that was it. Out he goes to repeat it again next year. The old covenant, with all of its rules and regulations, was an illustration of both the way in and the failure to get in. The religious rituals we read were all about the external. They are are physical regulations. They deal with food and drink and various washings. They maybe cleansed the body. They made you ritually clean but they didn't help because they cannot perfect the worshipper's conscience. They couldn't deal with the heart. They couldn't truly undo the effects of sin and the punishment due for it. The blood of bulls and goats and calves and pigeons offered year after year, week after week, day after day even, never paid for the guilt of sinners. 
Now, mind you, if you ever find yourself considering religions, if you start to explore for whatever reason, or perhaps you're somebody who's exploring even now, now there's a question to ask. What does this particular view of the world have to say about my guilt? How does it deal with it? How does it cleanse my conscience? He says, with that in the background, with the knowledge of the old covenant, with all of its failures, that we can see the greatness of what God does in the Lord Jesus Christ. It it is such a helpful contrast because where the old covenant showed us that the way to God was barred, that we couldn't get to God, Jesus is successful. Have a look at verse 11. See, Jesus didn't enter into a earthly temple to offer limited sacrifices. No, he entered into the true temple, heaven, to offer even greater sacrifice, his own blood. Verse 11, Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come in the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, He entered the most holy place once for all time, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow sprinkling those who are defiled sanctify for the purification of the flesh, they do have some effect. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works so that we can serve the living God. Therefore, he is a mediator of a new covenant that those who are called might receive the promise of the eternal inheritance because a death has taken place for redemption from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Jesus succeeds where the old covenant didn't because he entered into the real tabernacle in heaven and presented not the blood of bulls or the blood of calves, but his own. Now, I trust that you'll agree with me that a person is more valuable than a calf. I hope you agree with me on that. You you, you may not. I mean, you might be a particular view of the world in which all are equal, but For most of us, you kill a person, and we call that murder. You kill a cow, and we call that a barbecue, right? That's, we don't hold them to the same level. A person's blood, a human blood, a man's blood was so much more than a cow's. Actually, in this case, even more than that, because we have Jesus' blood, God himself, perfect God and perfect man, his blood worth so much more, a sacrifice of such great value that he can pay for all sin for all time. Now this was a real sacrifice. And by the way, it's worth pointing out that this was a real sacrifice. It wasn't symbolic, it wasn't Uh, some sort of metaphor, it wasn't even a way of teaching, this truly cost God. To have God the Father and God the Son rendered asunder, pulled apart, 
separated for the first time in eternity past. The Son forsaken by the Father, ripped apart for my sin, ripped apart for yours. You know what? The fact that this was a real sacrifice, it tells us that we matter. It tells us that who you and I are and what you and I do matters to God. If it didn't matter, why on earth would he sacrifice for us? It's part of why I love Christianity. It's why I love being a follower of Jesus. I think that out of any view you could have of the world, this one gives it meaning and value. This one helps us know that who I am and what I do and what I are matter. Matters to God. I mean, who who on earth would be an atheist to have such a bleak, purposeless, amoral view of the world where no one matters and nothing matters because in the end it's all just atoms bouncing around in the universe? Why on earth would you think that way? when instead we can know the God who loves us such that he sent his only son, who in his death brings cleansing of conscience because evil, wickedness and its consequences are properly, properly dealt with. You know what happens when, you, when you've got a guilty conscience? There's this strange thing that happens, I, I'm, I'm sure you've experienced it, where... When you've wronged someone, you kind of stop having quite so much to do with them. Maybe you avoid them, you talk a little bit less, you, you don't want to risk bringing this up. You, you feel a separation, a, a break, a, a lack of relationship. I, I can illustrate it for you, if you like, by talking about libraries. Uh, obviously, at the moment, we can't go in, but imagine for a moment that you, you'd borrowed a, a book from the library. Oh, let's just Let's just pick for... For illustration's sake, an Asterix and Obelix graphic novel, one of, one of those cartoons, uh, comic books, I guess you'd call them, really, if, if we're going to go with the kids' language. Yeah, just purely hypothetically, okay? This is no bearing on any sort of reality. Um, but imagine you, you really like these, and so you borrowed ten of them. Uh, ten is the maximum that this particular library, uh, purely hypothetically, of course, allows you to borrow. And so you borrow ten of them because they're fantastic, and you bring them home and you read them straight away because, gee, they're fun. And, uh, and, and maybe you hold on to them for a while because you think you're going to read them a little bit more. And you keep them for a bit longer and then a little bit longer still. And then one day you get a reminder from the library to say, hey, um, those, those items you borrowed, they're, they're now overdue and we'd, we'd really like you to bring them back, please. And you think to yourself, oh, really? Do I have them? There they are. I really should take them back, shouldn't I? I guess I'm in trouble now. This particular library, let's just say, again, hypothetically, charges 10 cents a day per item you're late and you've got 10 of That's a dollar a day. Well, oh, no, they're already a week late. That's seven bucks. I, I guess I better get them back quickly. And, uh, and it kind of slips your mind. And then another week goes by and a month goes by. And they're sending you some pretty nasty emails now, right? You really need to bring these items back. We're, we're not going to let you use our services anymore until you return the books that are overdue. Now, what happens? All of a sudden, you stop going to the library. You stop relating to this person because you know you're in the wrong. You know you're guilty. And if you come and bring them to them, well, they'll charge you more than the books themselves are worth now. 
when what you ought to do, of course, is face up to what you've done, pay the fine, and move on. You have a clean conscience. Verse 14, right? What happens? The blood of Christ, who offered himself without blemish to God, cleanses our conscience from dead works, and then what happens? So that we can serve the living God. You see, you've taken the books back, you've paid the fine. I might go to the library now. I might borrow a book. I will relate once again. My conscience is cleansed. My relationship with God is restored. I can be in good standing again with him. I might talk to God and listen to him once again and pursue his ways. Pray without feeling like a hypocrite. Approach God and speak to him, listen to him, relate to him. Serve him. You see, we needed Jesus to cleanse us because the cleansing of a conscience requires death. To cleanse guilt, the the true guilt, the deep guilt that we have before God, it doesn't require niceness or goodness. It's not like we can somehow undo the evil of the past by becoming nice people. It doesn't even require religiosity. What it requires is death. there, There are some contracts that require death. The one we're most familiar with is a will, a testament, right? This is the last will and testament of so-and-so. When I die, this will come into effect. That contract requires death. The old covenant, the old contract, it was enacted with blood. It was brought about with blood. Look down at verse 18. That is why even the first covenant was inaugurated with blood. When every command had been proclaimed by Moses to the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats along with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled everything with it. Blood just went everywhere. Saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God has ordained for you. In the same way, he sprinkled the tabernacle, the articles of worship with blood, just blood everywhere. According to the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is... No forgiveness. Our culture is rapidly losing the sense that you ought to pay for what you've done. This sense of individual responsibility. That my actions require something of me. And so we have no-fault insurance. That's not the guilty person who pays. Just don't worry about it. We'll pay everyone out. We'll have all the innocent people, they can increase their premiums and they'll pay for it, right? No-fault divorce, doesn't matter, come in, come out, 15 seconds, you're divorced. There's no sense that someone might be to blame and they ought to be held accountable for it. You see, before God, you break it, you pay for it. You sin and death is required. But the problem is that then you're dead, (laughs) Therefore, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called might receive the promise of the eternal inheritance because a death has taken place for redemption from the transgressions committed. This is what Jesus has done. This is the the heart of the gospel. This is the gospel. This is the good news that we have. Jesus has done it once and for all. This unique event, the death of Jesus on a cross, it was, it was so, so decisive, so unique that it once for all deals with sin. 
such that no further sacrifice is ever required of you or of me. I tell you what, what Jesus has done destroys religion. It destroys the notion that we need external ceremonial trappings, that we need stuff that somehow make us clean before God. All of that is now irrelevant. He has died and his death opens heaven for us. The way is now open. The tabernacle taught that the way to God was this way through death, but it was still closed at that point. Jesus has now opened it such that our consciences are cleansed. We have value and meaning to life and we can know of the great significance that we are to God. Please don't add trappings back on. Don't hang things onto it that somehow we need to go back to the old covenant. Somehow we need to go back to ways of external washings and rituals and physical regulations that are not necessary for the pardon of sin. Jesus paid it all. You see, the reality we live in is that it is appointed for man to die once and after that to face judgment. But for Christians, at that judgment, Christ will appear to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Christ himself will stand there and say, yes, this one deserves condemnation and I've already paid. This one deserves to have his and her blood spilt and mine already was. We no longer hide from judgment. We are not afraid of the future. We don't cower before God, uncertain of the outcome. Jesus has paid it all. Have you ever felt sorry for what you've done? I wonder how many of us have a tender conscience toward God. How many of us feel the weight of our sin as wrongdoing against God? Now, most of us don't like facing the consequences of our sin with people, right? When, when, when our relationships break down, when we have to make restitution, when we have to face the music to other people, we don't like that. But I wonder how many of us recognize that when we sin, we are sinning against God. It made me think of Psalm 51 and and the experience of King David as he reflected upon his sin. Let me read for you just a couple of verses from the start of Psalm 51. Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love. According to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion. Completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin, for I am conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me against you and you alone have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. It's a really strange sentence that David writes here. Against you and you alone have I sinned. Uh, If you've got your Bible open, you might have noticed a little heading. Uh, The psalm starts like this. For the choir director, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him 
after he had gone to Bathsheba. Now, you might not remember the story. David went and committed adultery with a guy's wife, then had the guy essentially killed so that he could marry the woman that he'd committed adultery with. Didn't you sin against them? Didn't you sin against Uriah when you had him killed? Didn't you sin against Bathsheba when you as the king presumably used your power to commit adultery with her? Did it? Well, that was wrong. But our sin, our rebellion, our enmity, our wickedness, in the end, is against God. Do we feel the sting of our sin as it fractures our relationship with God? Do we feel that sting that it might cause us to flee to the Lord Jesus? To know all the more how wonderful the forgiveness we have in him is. Do do you know God in this way? Through Jesus? Through the mediation of the one who has died for you? If you don't, can I ask you to please listen to your conscience? Please will you listen to the sting that says this is not right? I'll tell you what, you won't find balm for it anywhere else. You won't find a cure for your soul anywhere other than Jesus because nowhere else is your guilt dealt with. If you don't come to Jesus, you will carry that guilt the rest of your life and you will die with it. But how great it is, how marvellous, how wonderful to know the Lord Jesus who has died for us, to have a conscience that is clean, that the guilt has been lifted, that the punishment has already been laid on him, such that we can now come back to God and serve him with a clean conscience, holding on tight to our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you so much that in him you have come and paid what we could not, that you have opened the way that was closed, that you have shed the only blood that could bring true restitution, proper restoration of relationship. We thank you that you bring a conscience to us that is cleansed. However much we might see our sin and know our sin in ourselves, however much our conscience is pricked by the evil that we do, We turn to you looking for for forgiveness, knowing that it is there in the Lord Jesus. We thank you that this restoration enables us, empowers us to to live rightly relating to you again, to serve you, to live for you, not, not to ignore you, not to somehow try and hide because of our guilt, but to be able to stand before you and be loved and love you. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.